welcome to episode 50 of Breakout Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. Regular listeners, please don't faint. I know you're expecting Ed to introduce the podcast as usual, but after 10 episodes as lockdown culture and another 50 as breakout culture, we thought we could risk a tiny change. Plus, heroically, Ed ran in the London Marathon last Sunday, and so I'm giving him a little bit of a rest. But back to the plot as we have a seriously exciting podcast today with a fabulous lineup. Ben Ockrey needs hardly any introduction as one of our most acclaimed authors. But just to remind you, in 1991, he won the Booker Prize for The Famished Road. He was the youngest ever author to win it at just 32. His fiction has won numerous other awards. He's also an acclaimed essayist, playwright, poet, anthropologist and aphorist. In 2019, Astonishing the Gods was named one of the BBC's 100 novels that shaped our world. And his poem responding to the Grenfell Tower tragedy was read on Channel 4 News and had over 6 million views. We are thrilled to have him on our podcast. And he's here to talk about his new book, Every Leaf, A Hallelujah. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Ed. Real pleasure. And Charlotte, I've been looking forward to this. Oh, well, it's just fantastic to have you with us because this beautiful book um, with exquisite illustrations by Diane Edjeita, if that's the right well, way to well pronounce done. it. Well <laughs> done. You got it right first time. <laughs> I've been in Nigeria. <laughs> it's, a, it's about a little girl's relationship with trees in the shrinking forest outside her village in Africa. Now, Michael Molpergo has described this book as sheer joy, mysterious, magical and true. And I can vouch for it being absolutely enchanting, so much so that I read it through in one sitting. It's ostensibly a children's book, but it's so much more than that. You're an aphorist, which means you're able to give expression to general truths very concisely. And every leaf, a hallelujah, certainly does that. It's also unbelievably timely, obviously, with the Climate Change Conference COP26 coming up in November. Can you start, Ben, by giving our listeners a quick outline of the story? It'd be, it'd be, it'd be a pleasure. It's the story of uh, uh, Mangoshi's uh, mother, um, who is who is ill and of her village, which is um, in some sort of peril. And um, the only thing that can heal the mother is a mysterious flower, it's a magical flower that grows in the forest just near where they live. This flower can not only heal the mother, but can also save the village. But this flower can only be found by a child and a very brave one. And Mangoshi offered to be brave enough to go into the forest to find this flower to help heal her mother. And it's a story of what she discovers when she goes into the forest. And she discovers that the trees are dying and that we human beings are responsible for their death. And with the death of the trees comes also the death of this wonderful, mysterious flower that can heal her mother and heal her people. So it's a, it's a, it's a double adventure. So uh, she goes into the forest and she sort of talks to the trees as well. But this is also a story really about deforestation. I mean, we all know, obviously, about what is happening in the Amazon. It's depressing for everyone. Uh, and this sort of highlights similar sort of destruction that's going on in Africa. I just love you to talk about, you know, your kind of personal experience of what you've been seeing happening in Africa or perhaps more specifically in Nigeria. Was there something that led you to feel that you had to write this book now? Yes, Ed. Ed all, all my, all, for most of my life, I've been wanting to write this book without knowing it. And I've been aware of the, of the of de deforestation uh, since I was a child because I grew up 
you know, in Lagos and in and 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 and, and in the south and in the east. And when I was growing up, the forests were rich. The forests were real forests. I mean, the forests had personality. They had presence. You could you could sense them for miles and miles around. And in the years of my growing up, you just began to feel and see gaps. You heard them every day chopping down the trees. Every day you heard the, the whir of their, of their engines as the trees came falling. And every day you heard these big giant irokos, these, these, these wonderful baobabs. You could hear them groan as they fell. And you could hear when they fell, they crashed on the other trees. And the other trees, it, it, was, it was one of the tragic sounds of my, of, 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 of my childhood. And this, was hap- this has been happening for years and years. And... The thick forests that were there uh, are now empty spaces, and many of them are now villages, and and and, and many of them are now dry places. Um, it's 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 a kind of quiet tragedy. I mean, at the same time, other people in other parts of Lagos are are planting trees, but the the loss of the forest that I grew up with is is, is too profound and too too painful to even begin to speak of. It's 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 almost irreversible. Well, that, that sort of brings me on to my next question, really, which is, you know, what I really loved about this book is that though it's it's slim, you know, it packs so much in and it, it, it's been compared to Charlie Mackis's bestseller, The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse. But I think it's far more profound than that, as it's um, based on such a huge amount of knowledge about trees and deforestation. And it reminded me a bit of a condensed version of that brilliant Pulitzer Prize winning The Overstory by Richard Powers, which is, you know, I learned so much about trees talking to each other and everything, which is very much at the centre of this book. Um, you know, I feel you could have written, you know, 10 trilogies about trees, but uh, so I'm really interested to know why you, such a huge and important subject, you've chosen to write a, a, a children's book to tackle it. For me, it's just a song to the heart. It's a story kind of addressed to the heart of everybody who's ever had a feeling for the magic of trees. I, I, mm. I, I love trees. I love trees. Trees are very special very special beings. I think trees anchor us uh, to, to, to the earth. I think, I think trees, I mean, I say this often, trees are the only living things in nature, the only things that maintain that profound connection between the earth and the sun. They, they, their roots go deep into the earth, deep into the magic and the mystery of the earth. And the earth itself is a wonderful, wonderful uh, being and, 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 and mass because it is made of stardust. It's made of the, 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 ele- the elements of other stars. So it's not just Earth. It's, it's universe. It's celestial. The trees plant their roots deep into it. Their trunks is right where we are, where we walk around on the planet. And their leaves and their branches up into the heavens and draw nourishment and wonder from the sun. No other being, no other form, not mountains, not seas, not rivers, not human beings, not animals, nothing else quite has that extraordinary connection between the earth below and the, and, 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 and the sun. We, we, see, we view them as stationary. But what's really interesting yes. about your book is they move around. And actually, that's the thing about the, 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 the Richard Powers book as well that I learned is that under the ground, there's so much action going on. You know, they're not stationary at all, are they? They're, you know, talking to yeah. each other and communicating. And you really got that across. Trees are, trees are a bit like us. We, we think that all the action is going on on the outside. We really do. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but the real action, the real wonder, the real magic, the real torment, the real trauma, the, the real 
beauty is going on underneath, going on behind the scenes when with trees is underneath the earth. And, you know, I, th I think people have shown sort of x-rays of what's going on, on the, underneath the earth. And it's a whole, it's a whole, it's, it's practically a civilization down there. <laughs> it's the, 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 the underworld where trees and their roots um, operate and where they communicate with one another, as you said. And not just communicate, they sense one another. They sense and they support and they, they know when one is ill and they have a whole system of, of, of communal networks and support and understanding uh, intuition and kind of tree telepathy going on underneath it's, it's, it's extraordinary are you going to get involved in cop 26 uh you know i mean obviously reforestation and the planting of trees it's become a bit of a sort of shorthand for climate change and more and more companies sort of say oh we'll plant trees in order to mitigate our impact on the environment are you going to get involved and kind of highlight these issues i mean i think more artists should be Mm. at the forefront mm. of the debate on climate change. I, I, I completely agree with you, Ed. Absolutely. Yes, I will be at, I will be at COP26. Talking about trees, but more, more generally uh, talking about, about, about climate change, which I've been involved in. Um, I don't know if you heard about this thing that I did with, um, with um, Harvey, uh, Harvey Ackroyd, Dan and, Dan and Heather, um, two artists, environmental artists, where we sort of had um, uh, uh, two lines of poetry that I wrote and they grew it on grass and they put it out put it out like a banner on the Thames and the words that they had was um, do, can you see the future weeping uh, love must change the world and it's just a way in which art art has to get involved with environmental issues you're absolutely right because yeah. we work with we work with emotions don't we we don't mm -hmm. we don't have the we don't have the rigor of science in, in that sense but we do have the rigor of the heart uh, mm. and the rigor of the spirit and we can draw attention to these things in a very beautiful non-confrontational way actually ed do you like trees did you did you grow up with uh, a feeling for trees I've got trees at the bottom of my garden in Oxfordshire. So I've got a little wood that I uh, absolutely adore. And I mean, I live in Shepherd's Bush and in Ravenscourt Park, there's a remarkable tree, which I don't know the history of, which has a circumference of, you know, it must be at least 30 feet wide. And um, But in my old constituency in Wantage, there's supposed to be a mulberry tree under which Jonathan Swift sat writing. Yeah, yes. There's a, there's a, and then there's a tree at Trinity College, Cambridge, where I was a fellow many years ago. That's supposed to be the tree where... Uh, the great Isaac Newton had his uh, his um, revelatory um, gra gravity moment. So trees and inspiration um, mm. go a long way back. I mean, think of the think of the story of the Buddha sitting beneath the bow tree and um, you know having his having his great moment of enlightenment. So tree trees and trees and civilization um uh kind of kind of kind of kind of go together um when i go for long walks in places like regent's park it's kind of really beautiful to see uh people just leaning against a tree and reading it we, we associate we, we associate trees with nature but we also have this really intimate um relationship with trees even in daily lives in our in our cities Charlotte, have you have do you have a personal relationship with trees? Yeah, I'm actually mad about trees, partly because I live in London <laughs> and miss them so much. I mean, I'm as we speak, I'm looking out at an enormous tree that's at the back of my house, which is very lovely. Um, but they, you know, people come along and suddenly cut them down, and it really, really distresses exactly. me. Exactly. You know, and, and why, I do they, why do they do that? I don't know. They just think they they can. I agree with you. You can almost hear them scream. Um, I think I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but we've got to a point. 
in our history, and, in the, and I'm talking of a global history here because about 100, 150 years ago in many cultures, trees were revered. They were, they were related to the gods. They, I mean, the Romans had you know, tree gods, the ancient Egyptians and the, and, and the, and the Greeks all you know, deified um, um, the forests and the spirit of forests. And we've lost that sense completely. And I think it's one of the most tragic things Mm. that's happened to us not the not the whole thing about trees being gods and all of that but just the way in which we invest nature with something higher which it always has mm. when we lose that and we enter into this extreme materialism where everything gets to be turned into money that's when we begin to lose the great forests like the amazon that's why that's that's you know i don't know how we protect that i don't know if there's something we can do to sort of make these forests these great forests of the world's sacred places in some way if we lose them we will we will eventually lose ourselves mm. we, we certainly will and i think what's really depressing it's not just the man-made destruction although arguably of course climate change is entirely man-made but the the fires that almost are fires. unreported here in siberia they, yeah, they've destroyed yeah. an area of millions and millions and millions of yes. acres and that it's hardly reported yeah. the amazon burning recently that 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 just left me numb for days mm. yeah mm. yeah next time thomas packenham's in london we're going to get you to meet him under a tree yes. oh yes please <laughs> good yeah that'll be that's wonderful. a great idea we'd, yeah we do we do we do a reading and a and and uh, yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, lovely conversation. Tree conversations are great. I have two kind of favorite kind of conversations: conversations on the trees and conversations on long walks with friends. Nothing beats those two. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been a pleasure to have you. Oh, yeah, thank you. Real pleasure. Real joy. Thank you. On Wednesday, Start Fair now in its eighth year opens at London's Saatchi Gallery and runs till Sunday. Start was founded by David and Serenella Ciclatera both passionate art collectors with the aim of supporting emerging artists around the world. Back in 2009, David and Serenella also started the Global Eye Programme and Parallel Contemporary Art to bring more Asian art to the world. Listeners might already be aware of the exhibitions, including Korean Eye, Indonesian Eye or Thailand Eye, among others. And this year's start is going to include work by some hugely popular K-pop artists. For those of us listeners who might not know what K-pop is, it's South Korean pop music. And the musicians whose work is going to be at start have millions and millions of followers. So expect a very lively and fun atmosphere at the fair. So co-founder David Ciclatero was meant to be with us today, but he's currently on a train en route to Athens. However, you will be able to hear him and three of the fair's artists talking to Ed and me live from start next week in a Breakout Culture special edition. In the meantime, we have with us one of start's most talked about and exciting artists, Lucy Sparrow and the fair's head of partnerships, Gillian Anderson, who's very kindly stepped up in David's place to tell us all about it. Good morning to you both. Good morning. morning. Now, it's wonderful to have you both here. And as you come on at such short notice, Gillian, and also I know you know everything there is to know about the fair, let's start with you. Now, you've got more than 70 artists exhibiting from over 25 countries, so Start is clearly a truly global fair. But can you tell us how else it stands out from other fairs? I think uh, Start Art Fair's main USP, as it were, is the fact that it is dedicated to emerging artists. Unlike every other fair there is that, that has a small section for emerging artists start is all about emerging and those beginning to emerge artists and it is the most international affairs in in london it sounds absolutely great we want to hear more about some of the headline artists in a minute but one of those is the incredible felt 
artist Lucy Sparrow. She took the world by storm with her felt installation corner shop in the East End, and her career has skyrocketed since then. She's made a felt sex shop, a New York bodega, and this year her latest exhibition featured the Borden Street Chemist, with its floor-to-ceiling shelves stocked with 15,000 items from Tramadol to Viagra, all painstakingly crafted from felt. She was even commissioned by the BBC to make the crown jewels in felt to celebrate the Queen's official 90th birthday. This year, she has a brand new installation that's going to be at start. It's called The Billion Dollar Robbery, and it's all meant to be a surprise and kept under wraps, but I I suppose I shouldn't reveal that you've been painting 50-pound notes while we've been waiting to speak to you, Lucy. (laughs) (laughs) I have, and, you know, it's one of those uh, occupational hazards, I'm afraid. Um, Because the installations are so complicated, um, I generally can't stop for any any longer than, like, about 10 minutes. So tell us all about billion-dollar robbery while you're distracted and failing to adhere to your (laughs) non-disclosure agreement because you're too busy painting a 50-pound note. (laughs) Um. So basically, it is a freeze frame of a robbery, a a massive robbery of a safety deposit box kind of installation, which would have been similar to the Hatton Garden heist that was so famous quite a few years back. I've got a police car and it's in the um, in in pursuit of a getaway vehicle, which is an old um, minivan. And there's goals, gold bars, money, jewels, Rolexes. There's, there's just everything spilling out from this van where, and safety deposit boxes that have been crowbarred open. Um, and it's just absolute chaos. So you get and this is all this. full size. This is all full size, yeah. And in the midst of it is just thousands and thousands of um, felt um, banknotes. Do you think you are the world's most famous felt artist or are there others that are vying for your crown? Good question. I mean, to be honest, like it felt hasn't been used like hugely in, I guess, contemporary art. I guess the most famous one is probably Joseph Boyce, but I, but maybe not in the way that I'm using it. So I, I guess, yeah, from from that kind of niche niche standpoint, yes, maybe I am. I hope to be that person one day. You must have time for absolutely nothing else. I'm very intrigued to ask you about how long these things take. And secondly, I'm slightly intrigued about Basil the Banana, whom you're rarely photographed without. Well, to answer your first question, they take a really, really long time. So it's something each project, depending on the size, is usually a year in the making. I mean, this is kind of an exception because I was so keen to do it and I only found out that I was necessarily doing it in about April when David came to my chemist show. But I was just like, I have to do this and somehow I've managed to pull it off and I don't have time for anything else. This is all I do. <laughs> um, in regards to Basil, yeah, Basil is my companion. He comes in with me everywhere and we're just like the best of friends. And I think he's brilliant. And what is he? Just tell our listeners. Basil is, um, he's 50 centimetres long. He is a plush banana. He's got a little bell around his neck and he weighs <laughs> 321 grams. Exactly. And he's got a face. He's got the best face ever. It's like the, it encapsulates happiness in just like one expression. I think that's very true, Lucy. He does, he does look very happy whenever I've seen him. He's always the happiest. I think that's the thing. He makes you feel happy to be around him, for sure. Yeah, and I think people don't necessarily, they're like, oh, that's a bit weird. Why does she carry around a banana? And they meet him and they're like, oh, God, I totally underestimated the power of the banana. Brilliant. So we've got to get back to the main event. 
Uh, Gillian, tell us a bit more about the fair's highlights, a bit more about the K-pop stars and your plans to keep K-pop fans at bay with large fencing, because K-pop fans go absolutely mad for these pop stars. Yes, they do. Um, you know, quite rightly so. I mean, it's a very interesting uh, genre. And also the fact that some of these artists that, that are K-pop artists, they've secretly been artists for for years and years. And then uh, David has been able to kind of draw this uh, visual art out of them um, and show it for the first time is extremely exciting. Two of the artists in particular, Onim and Yu Yeon, they have collaborated with an artist called, uh, another Korean artist called Choi Nari, um, whose works will also be at start these collaborations, which are super exciting. Um, and then in person, we've got a Korean actor called Kang Huey, who will be at, at the fair in person on the opening in particular. And um, his artworks will be shown for the first time as part of Start.Art, which is our digital platform, which is on the top floor. Uh, it's a physical show, but it's, it's tied to our digital platform. We've also got a fabulous Thai artist called O+. Plus. Um, who lives in Germany. So she'll be coming over too, which is wonderful. Um, and then getting on to kind of the more mainstream of our artists, if if that's possible. Um, we've got uh, Harty, who's kind of a, a, a pop artist. One of his most interesting works, which is one of our key features of the fair, is his Brexit painting, which is all about the first Brexit, rather than our most recent and devastating Brexit. That uh, There was uh, the break from Henry VIII's break from the church. Uh, we've also got a contemporary Australian uh, gallery which focuses on Indigenous art. That's JGM Gallery. We've got a fabulous resin artist from America called Farrah Thomas. Um, and then we've got the amazing Mass Art Contemporano, uh, who are a Colombian gallery, and they are bringing a solo show of Carlos Salas ahead of a major retrospective next year of Colombian contemporary art. JG Contemporary, that's a very interesting gallery. She started out very much with urban and street artists and brings them um, kind of much more mainstream and into, uh, into everyone's homes. So there's something for everybody, I think, at start. That's that's kind of the point. And then as far as, you know, our K-pop artists, they're incredible and, and they bring a whole fresh kind of perspective to, uh, to contemporary art. We also have wearable artworks by three artists that will be for sale at the show too. You've also got some great photography, haven't you? You've got um, Chris Fallows, you've got, um, tell us a bit about some of the photography that's going to be there. Chris Fallows actually was the, the recipient of the of last year's Global Eye Award. Uh, so he his winning photograph, The Pearl, which is an icon iconic, now iconic photograph of uh, a shark breaching is part of his conservation so he's actually a conservationist and a wildlife photographer and his images are quite breathtaking I mean the, the danger he must put himself in in order to achieve these shots is quite amazing. Marie Jordan's work the series that she's showing is um, of part of the Namibian desert where um, a town was once incredibly wealthy up until sort of 1900, 1910 and then it started to deteriorate, people left, but these incredibly beautiful grand houses were left derelict and were slowly reclaimed by the desert. The images that Marie has taken 
are stunning and you know obviously you know anything derelict is going to have a small bit of sort of sadness to it but it also has that curiosity to know who lived there and and what what happened marie will be at the fair and you can chat to her about her work david mcgee is a cork based artist and he's very much a landscape photographer you'll find his works um very uh, moody and thought-provoking. Well, it just—it all sounds absolutely great. And Ed and I are going to be there at three o'clock next Thursday with a live panel, which is very, very exciting. And Lucy, we can't wait to see your installation. That's very exciting. And Gillian, thank you so, so much for coming and telling us all about it. Thank you, all of you. It's been lovely. And I look forward to seeing all of your listeners at the fair. Take care, guys. Thanks very much. See you soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye. It seems like just a few weeks ago that Elif Shafak came on the podcast to tell us about last year's Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival. But a year has rolled by very fast indeed, and this year's festival is already up and running. It opened on Friday and will run until the 17th of October. It's been guest curated this year by Bernadine Evaristo and Joan Bakewell and is set to be the most international gathering yet, both in Cheltenham and online, of fabulous writers and thinkers. It's being built around a three-year theme, Read the World, and celebrates cultures across the globe through their lifestyles, cuisine, literature, art, design, history, science, politics and current affairs. And of course, there are plenty of events for kids too. Here to tell us all about it is the festival's head of programming, Nicola Tuxworth. Good morning, Nicola. Good morning. It's great to meet you, Nicola, and congratulations on the 2021 programme. Thank you very much. It's the oldest festival in the world. It's been going since 1949. Yes, that's right. We've got 72 years on the clock. (laughs) Isn't that great? Yeah. Uh, You've got Sebastian Folks, Isabel Allende, Lionel Shriver, Joan Collins, Dawn French, Eileen Atkins, Ed Miliband, Raymond Blanc, Andrew Roberts, Mary Beard, and me. I'm <laughs> taking part too. I'm Satnam Sangera on the afternoon of the 15th of October. It's completely sold out. They've had to hire three extra halls with live screens <laughs> because so many people want to see Ed Vasey. And I, I totally get that. <laughs> Nothing to do with Satnam, obviously. <laughs> no, no, he's just a, a sideshow. <laughs> so we were talking on last week's podcast about sometimes being overwhelmed by the richness of cultural choices. And obviously here, no one can expect to see everything apart from me, obviously. So tell us about the real headlines and tell us a bit more about reading the world theme and who is going to be exploring and illustrating that. Mm. Yeah, I'm always very reluctant to pull out people as real headliners because I think that... Everyone says um, that. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think think it really is a very sort of rich programme. And yes, you know, the literary giants are there and we've got some very prominent, you know, think tank uh, conveners and, um, you know, we've got our Chatham House events and things like that. But, you know, your life can really be changed by going to see a brilliant debut novelist as well or someone you know or going to see an event on a topic you don't know anything about for example so yes you know the the literary greats are there but we like at Cheltenham to really think that we're growing 
you know, and and kind of um, nurturing the next raft of talent too to come through. But, you know, I mean, you'd have to pull out someone like Richard Osman too. I mean, what an incredible thing he's done, you know, the biggest selling debut novel ever. And he's here to talk about his follow-up. So, you know... Is it set in, a, in, a, in an old people's home again? again? We don't call them that anymore, do we? No, we Retirement. don't. No. <laughs> Retirement <laughs> community. <laughs> yeah. uh, the retirement community where his mother lives, I think. And it's sort of packed full of retired spies and pathologists and doctors. And uh, so I think it's a very cute setup, actually. And you can see how... You know, he sort of reinvented cosy crime for you know, 2020, I think. So, yeah, I mean, that'll be great and a real crowd pleaser. We've got Ian Hislop talking about 60 years of Private Eye, which closes the festival. So Ian's always fantastic in uh, interviews. Very, very, very thoughtful and really, really passionate about what the purpose of investigative journalism is and satire and so on. So, you know, as I say, it's, it's difficult to pull out any one person or real headliners but I think it's the richness of the programme and also I suppose the gift of digital which we we sort of we had a pivot a sort of digital hybrid festival last year which made made us realise that you know Isabel IND wouldn't be able to travel this year but to record a sort of 50 minute interview with her just fantastic and we've got seven other recordings like that of, of authors from all over the world obviously live And being in a hall together is still, I think, an incredibly powerful experience for people. And people really want that. But you can get in front of your favourite authors. And it's pretty seamless, actually. We've also done panel debates where, you know, one person is talking from Washington, for example. And it does work incredibly well if you've got a big plasma screen they can see everyone on stage they can see the hall you can see them the only thing i'd say about that is ed you know a bit like this about this because it's quite difficult when the it, the chair of the panel has the person dialing in behind them do you remember this hey ed you you've got a sort of neck crick <laughs> mm. having to keep well, yeah, but when you're as when you're as professional and talented as I am at comparing these <laughs> of uh, debates, it's it's actually very easy. To be honest, I think moderators are the great unsung heroes of. It's of so I agree. I agree. You yeah. know, um, they can really make or break an event, and we're we're very very uh, grateful to the fantastic group of moderators that we've got. You know, and also I mean the other great unsung heroes we're celebrating the show of translators. You know, that's ah. an extraordinary skill. Talking of which, you've got the Sunday Times award for literary excellence going to Eleanor Ferrante. She's coming over to pick it up in person, isn't she? <laughs> You'll have to wait and see. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, ra- that's raised a few eyebrows. Um, but uh, you'll have to wait and see how the event why, comes out. Why, why, is it, why is it raised a few eyebrows? Well, because she's notoriously the most elusive, anonymous, big-selling author in the world. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, well, we think it's a she, pretty sure it is, but, um, yeah, her translator will be with us. Um, Talking and you'll have, which, exactly. Yeah. And you'll, yes, exactly. And you'll have to see who else turns up. 
<laughs> have you exactly have you exciting. have you given her the prize in order to flush her out? <laughs> well, I'm sure that's why she's won so many prizes. Just everybody desperate for her to come and pick them up. <laughs> I, I know, and I, I mean, prizes are sometimes made up in order to do that. I think, but um, but actually, the Sunday Times Prize for Literary Excellence has been running for a long time, and it's got an incredible pedigree, you know, of people who've accepted it. So I think that's probably one of the reasons that she said yes. Can you tell us just a bit more about what? Um, Bernadine Evaristo's and Joan Bakewell's vision was for this reading the world. Did they work together, or did they did they sort of curate different parts of the festival, or how did that work? So no, they work individually because they uh, what what they do is we approach them usually a year to eighteen months before the actual festival, and um, we usually ask them to think of. Well, they always do their own event because they're normally publishing in the year that they guest curate. So they'll do an event about their own. Um, So obviously Bernie will be talking about Manifesto. And then they choose two or three events that they would like to explore on stage. And um, so so Bernie was very interested in African writing, so she's put an event together about that. With Joan, obviously her book is about moving on, you know, the sort of last stage of your life and changing and adapting your life to to live that in a fulfilling way in a realistic way so she um wanted to explore issues connected with that and also with interestingly with mothers and daughters and that relationship if you want to take your kids there there's lots to do as well isn't there so you've got joe wicks and lenny henry and michael morpurgo and all sorts of people so Tell us a bit more about the family programme. So there's a big schools programme that runs all all week. Current Affairs is very, very popular in the adult programme. And this is the first year that we've decided to introduce more Current Affairs into the family programme. Um, So we've used the Week Junior to help us curate some events for that. And there's a lot of free events as well. Um, in the family program so we've got this area called the wild woods where you can turn up and you know do all sorts of hands-on events listen to stories so it's not just you know paying to go into a tent there's ever such a lot of other stuff going on all across the site for families just tell our listeners the website to go to to get all their tickets and see everything (laughs) okay so it's um cheltenfestivals.com there's Plenty of tickets still available, actually. And I not think... for Ed, though. Not for Ed and Satnam, though. That's no, I'm completely not for Ed and sold out. <laughs> not, not, for, not for Bob Mortimer. <laughs> Bob Mortimer was the first event to sell out. I think, really? I think that's really... Yeah. I think What's he talking think, about? Well, he's talking about his memoir. And he, you know, I think it's that gentle humour and the sort of kindness that people you know people are after a bit of that I think at the mm. end of this people do do they do love Bob Mortimer they absolutely love treasure. Bob Mortimer yeah. so um but there's plenty of tickets available and um and also it's a beautiful weather forecast for next week so you know oh, come good. along and and we can there's a bit there'll be a box office on site thank you so much for coming on it sounds very very exciting and um well i hope we've... i hope everyone will enjoy it you know it's uh it's the fruit of a long of a long and intense piece of work but very enjoyable piece of work so yeah and ed remind everybody when you're on with satnam friday the 15th at two thirty. excellent thank you very very much
Take care, Nicola. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. But don't forget that Charlotte and I will be bringing you a special edition of Breakout Culture from Start Fair next week. And thank you again to our sponsor, Martin Miller's Gin. I've noticed from some of their ads that they're suggesting serving their original gin with tonic, strawberries and black peppercorns. Sounds absolutely delicious, but do also try their Winterful Gin, which is infused with cinnamon and mandarin and very good indeed. Next week, we're going to be telling you all about what Martin Miller has in store for you at the Affordable Art Fair. But for now, to find out more about their gin, you can go to martinmillersgin.com, where you can also claim a 10% discount until the end of October by using the code RAKEOUT2021 at the checkout. And on our website, which is, of course, countryandtownhouse.co.uk, you'll find all the details of Start Fair and the Cheltenham Literature Festival. We're also soon to be launching a very special edition of Great British Brands Zero, which has been over a year in the making. Great British Brands Zero is a call to arms to the luxury industry to cut their emissions very appropriate that we've had Ben Ockrey on this uh, podcast and to sign up to the international campaign Race to Zero. We spoke to 26 industry leaders about how their brands are going about changing the way they do business and it makes for heartening and inspiring reading. We're gathering those 26 luxury industry leaders to launch it on the 26th of October ahead of COP26 and I'm pretty thrilled with it even if I would say that as the editor do take a look as it will be live on the Country and Townhouse website on the 19th now I'm off for a wonderful winterful gin and tonic see you next week goodbye bye <laughs>